The year is 1852. St. John Bosco's evening classes at the oratory were attended by several hundred boys, but they could only house a fraction of them because of limited lodging in their main building, and what rooms there were had been severely damaged by the explosion of a gunpowder factory in Turin. It wasn't long before our saint had gathered enough funds for a new building that would be added on to the old one, but in the middle of construction, there were a series of terrible catastrophes. In this episode, I'll show you how the hand of divine providence protected the oratory boys from a sudden death. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On Saturday, November 20th, a section of the building under construction collapsed from the height of the third floor when a walkway fell. Three workers were injured. The consternation and fright of everyone was great. But in the anguish of those moments, Don Bosco raised his eyes to heaven in resignation and uttered the words always on his lips, God's will be done. Everything is God wills. Without dismay, he commanded that the section of the fallen wall be reconstructed with haste. But a greater loss was reserved for him. When the building was almost finished and awaiting its roof, a violent and prolonged rainstorm halted the work. The downpour continued for several days and nights, and the water washed away the fresh mortar, turning the walls into heaps of bricks and stones without cement to bind them together. Late in the evening of December 1st, a hundred of the city's youngsters were gathered in the oratory for evening school, and around nine o'clock, they all went home. Don Bosco and his boys were deep asleep when, a little past 11 o'clock, a horrible roar awoke them. The roar was caused by the collapse of the old building adjoining the one under construction. It was a terrible catastrophe as part of the wall toppled to the ground. But the Lord's mercy was apparent. If the collapse had happened two hours earlier, how many victims would it have claimed? Don Bosco's mother was about to go to bed. She rushed out of her room, fearing, not without reason, that her son had been buried under the ruins. She cried out as loud as she could, Don Bosco, get up! Get out! Save yourself! She ran to the door of the room and called again, but heard no answer. She pushed the door, but it wouldn't open. She saw that a large stone had fallen through the bedroom ceiling, creating a hole through which the rain was now falling. Then she went down the stairs into the kitchen to find the key and try to open that door. Meanwhile, the frightened young men leaped from their beds, some in their sleeping clothes and some in just nightshirts. In complete confusion, still ignorant of what had happened, each wrapped himself in his blankets and sheets as best he could. They evacuated the ground floor dormitories without knowing where to go. Some ran to the gate to escape, while others ran into the church to find shelter at the foot of the altar. Some huddled by the nearby trees, and others finally stopped in the middle of the courtyard. The fifty or so young men running here and there made for a pitiful sight. Some were sobbing, and others screamed. Some fell and sank into the mud, and others fell into puddles of water. They soon realized the cause of the noise, because beams, tiles, and materials now cluttered the ground. All the young men were calling for Don Bosco and waiting for Mother Margarita, who took the keys to his room. 
Then they heard the familiar sound of a small bell, and a lamp appeared at the end of the balcony. It was Don Bosco, who now quietly left his room and came down to inspect the ruins. He had been half awake when he heard the first rumbling, and, as he listened, heard another great rumble that sounded like thunder. But not seeing lightning, he realized he was indeed in danger because his room was closest to the new building. As soon as he appeared, the boy shouted, Don Bosco! Oh, Don Bosco's saved! And forgetting the mud and the rubble, they ran to him and surrounded him. One said, Don Bosco, did you not hear the wall crashing down or your mother's cries? Another asked Don Bosco whether he suffered much or had hurt himself. A third wondered why he did not immediately leave his room. A fourth told him, see how our feet and legs are bruised? Each boy competed to tell Don Bosco about his dexterity, his athletic prowess, and somersaults to escape that night's danger. Don Bosco listened patiently and answered with consoling words without any disquiet, with that calmness proper to the faithful servants of God and people of peace. He first asked whether any misfortune had befallen the boys. Hearing that no injury had disturbed the children of the oratory other than the building's collapse, he became jubilant. He started teasing them about how they looked in the aftermath of the event. He chuckled at the fear of one boy and jested about the improvised bedding covering another. Ultimately, he invited them to go throughout the courtyard to greet one another. His calm spirit greatly soothed the young men amid their great dismay. Then he led them into the dining room and told them the oratory had already suffered persecution and tense situations. Nevertheless, it flourished and grew every day. Therefore, he asked them all to keep their trust and divine providence. He said, Now that we have received this grace and are all unharmed, let us recite the litanies. At his invitation, all fell to their knees, reciting the litanies with him in thanksgiving to the Lord, who had not allowed anyone to be crushed under the ruins. At that same instant, Don Bosco was thinking seriously, And now where do we go? What should we do? The night was dark. It was raining. It was cold. For some time, however, they had heard no more ominous noises. Don Bosco continued to consider the situation and realized that whatever was unstable had finished collapsing. No significant damage had appeared on the side of the house where everyone slept. It was already half an hour past midnight, and Don Bosco wanted everyone to get the rest they needed. He told the young men, It's time for you to go quietly back to sleep. Be assured that no misfortune will happen to you. Remove your beds from that unstable room with all possible caution. Move some to the sacristy and come here to the refectory. It was no sooner said than it was done. In the blink of an eye, everyone disappeared and flew off to load their beds on their shoulders. Anyone who had seen how easily and swiftly they carried their belongings would have thought that they were a group of soldiers because they were so quick and efficient. In less than a quarter of an hour, 20 beds were moved to the new quarters. Mother Margarita was displaying a stout courage worthy of high praise. She ensured that no one approached the danger zone, distributed the youngsters to their rooms, and kept watch until dawn, moving like a general on a battlefield. In her, anyone could see a true mother whose love made her forget herself and care only about her children and Don Bosco showed himself worthy of such a mother. He repeatedly risked his own life to secure the boys' lives, 
going around to see if any further collapse was imminent. Don Bosco urged the young men to lie down, and he made a short prayer and returned to his room, which was still unstable. All the others gradually imitated him in returning to bed to try to sleep, except for a few who withdrew to the church to pray. In the morning, everyone described the continual overnight noises caused by bricks, stones, beams, and planks falling from the destruction overhead. By five in the morning, most of the boys were already in the courtyard to look at the rubble. Then, at about half-past five, the middle wing collapsed. It fell on the central and higher portion. This caused noise four times as loud as the first, with such a tremor that it made the house shake for several minutes. Those still dozing in bed leaped to their feet, dressed, and went down to see what had happened. But Don Bosco had abandoned himself into God's hands. Having already descended into the church, he calmly had the young men assemble. He invited them to thank the Lord for having escaped so miraculously. Then he celebrated Holy Mass. He came out of church amid all the boys and smiled, exclaiming, the devil has done this to me because he doesn't want me to enlarge the oratory and gather new young men, but we will do it to spite him. The devil wanted to kick us, but rest assured the Lord is stronger than he is, and the devil will not prevent God's work. Before long, the courtyard was packed with people who had come to see the ruined building out of curiosity. The mayor came with two municipal engineers and they comforted Don Bosco by assuring him that the misfortune would not harm the oratory. So immediately, the two engineers began inspecting the cause of the disaster. As we have heard, the new building was annexed to the old one. Over Don Bosco's room towered a tall pillar left after the collapse, which hung frighteningly over the ruined old building. One of the engineers carefully examined that pillar, and biting his lip, asked Don Bosco, "'Who slept there?' About 30 of us did, Don Bosco replied. The engineer took Don Bosco by the arm and said, You and your boys should thank Our Lady. The way that pillar stands defies the laws of gravity. If it had fallen, it would have crushed you and the boys. It's a true miracle. Orders were quickly given to demolish it. Taking the necessary precautions, the stonemason secured it tightly with large ropes and then, having climbed the walkways, undid the knots little by little, lowering the pillar gently and saving the old building from ruin. With cheerful countenance and kind words, Don Bosco encouraged his boys. He said, let us take everything that happens to us from the hand of God, and I assure you that the Lord will hold our resignation in high regard. We must thank the Lord and the Blessed Virgin because amid these sad events, God's benevolent and providential hand has mitigated our misfortune. He then said to himself, Nothing troubles you, for he who has God has everything. The Lord is the master of the house. I am a humble servant. What pleases the master pleases me. Thank you all for watching, and if you'd like to see a playlist about the cholera epidemic in which Don Bosco and his boys did many good works, just click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. I think it's appropriate to start out this video in front of a statue of St. Joseph, who is the patron saint of a good death. I'll be telling a story about Don Bosco in which he had a mystical dream sent from above in order to help an oratory boy prepare for eternity. The vision revealed accurately who was next to die.
The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. While speaking to a group of clerics about death, Don Bosco pointed out how this tremendous step into eternity had frightened even the greatest of saints. He said, when I attend to a critically ill person, I don't tell him that he must prepare himself for death. Perhaps he will not die and will instead be cured, and such an approach will not ease his fear of death. I point out to him that we are in the hands of God, the kindest father there is, who continually watches over us and knows what is best for us. I urge him to abandon himself into God's hands as a child abandons himself into the hands of his father. This way, the sick person finds relief from the fear of death, takes supreme pleasure in thinking that his fate is in God's hands, and waits for God to do as he wills in his infinite goodness. On March 21st, Don Bosco went in the evening to say goodnight to the boys and said, I must tell you a dream. Imagine the hour of recreation in the oratory, filled with animated and joyous sounds. I seem to be leaning against the window and observing you in the courtyard, merrily amusing yourselves by playing, running, and jumping. Then I heard a great uproar at the porter's lodge and looked to see a tall, older man entering the courtyard. He had a broad forehead, sunken eyes, and a long white beard, and appeared to be wrapped in a funeral shroud. He held his left hand tightly to his body and had a torch with a hazy blue flame in his right hand. He walked with slow and grave steps. Sometimes he stopped and bowed his head, like someone looking for something lost. He walked through the courtyard and passed among the young men who continued their games. He entered the carpenter's workshop and stopped before a young man who was playing. Stretching his extended arm, he brought the torch close to the young man's face. "'Tis indeed he,' he said, and he nodded his head abruptly two or three times. He stopped the boy and presented him with a note drawn from the folds of his cloak. The young man took the note, opened it, and read it. He turned pale and asked, When? Soon? That old man replied in a voice that seemed like it came from the grave. Come now, the hour for you has struck. Can I at least finish the game? The young man asked. You may be caught by surprise while playing. He meant that death would come suddenly. The young man, trembling, wanted to speak but couldn't. Then the stranger dropped a flap of his robe and pointed with his left hand to the porch. A coffin was in the middle of the gateway that leads into the garden. There, you see, he said to the young man, that coffin is for you. Come quickly. I'm not prepared. I'm still too young, the young man protested. Then, silently and swiftly, the stranger walked out of the oratory. As I was wondering who he was, I woke up. You can already infer that one of you must prepare himself, for the Lord will soon call you to eternity. I know who it is because I saw him when the stranger presented the note. The young man is here now, listening to me, but I will tell no one until he dies. Now let each of you think about this. I have told you the dream as it happened, because if I had not done so, the Lord would later ask me, why didn't you speak up at the proper time? Let each of you think about ensuring that you're in a state of grace, especially in these three remaining days of the Novena of the Most Holy Annunciation. Let's pray especially for this purpose, 
and each of you in these three days should say at least one Salve Regina, or Hail Holy Queen, to Mary Most Holy for the sake of that fellow. Thus, as he exits this life, he will receive several hundred prayers, which will help him significantly. As Don Bosco left his chair, some boys asked him privately whether this or that boy would die sooner or later. He replied that the boy would not live past two feast days, beginning with the letter P. And perhaps he would not live past even one more. He could die two or three weeks from now. This account put a chill through everyone, each fearing to be the fellow who would die soon. This fear did a great deal of good, and as each young man thought about his affairs and conscience, confessions became much more numerous the next day. For several days, many young men approached Don Bosco to question him, asking whether they were destined to die. Don Bosco deflected these questions and said nothing, but two ideas remained fixed in his mind. First, the death would be sudden, and second, it would happen before two solemnities whose titles begin with the letter P, Easter, or Pasch, and Pentecost. That year, Easter fell on April 20th. In the oratory, great expectation developed when on Wednesday, April 16th, young Fornacio Luigi of Borgado Torinese died at his home at the age of 12. There are a few things to note about him. When Don Bosco said that someone would die, this young man started leading a genuinely exemplary life, although he was never really bad. He asked Don Bosco to let him make a general confession. Don Bosco did not want to allow this because the boy had already made it once, but Don Bosco relented and heard his confession over two or three sessions. On the day the boy first asked for confession, he began to feel unwell. He stayed a few days at the oratory, but always felt sick. When two of his brothers came to see him and learned of his illness, they asked Don Bosco to let the boy return home for a while. Don Bosco gave permission. Shortly before, the boy had finished making his general confession and received Holy Communion. He went home and was up for a few more days, but then went back to bed. His illness became severe as it affected his head, took away his speech, and sometimes left him unconscious. The fact is that he could no longer confess or receive Holy Communion. Don Bosco went to Borgiato to see him, and Fornacio still recognized him and wanted to talk, but not being able to speak, he began to cry, and so did his whole family. The next day, he died. When the news of his death reached the oratory, several clerics asked Don Bosco if Fornacio was the one who had received the note in the dream, and Don Bosco told them no. Nevertheless, some held that the prophecy had been fulfilled in Fornacio and his death. On this same evening, April 16th, Don Bosco described Fornacio's death to the boys, pointing out that it gave everyone a great lesson. Those who have time do not wait for time, he explained. Let us not be deceived by the devil with the hope of improving the state of our soul at the point of our death. Don Bosco was asked publicly whether Fornacio was the one who would die, but Don Bosco replied that he couldn't say just then. He added, however, that in the oratory, the young men tended to die in pairs. So he admonished them, be on your guard and heed the Lord's warning to be prepared. Be ready, because at an hour that you do not expect, the Son of Man will come. The Gospel of Matthew. 
Don Bosco came down from his chair and privately told some priests and clerics that Fornasio was not the one in the dream. On April 17th, at recreation time after lunch, Don Bosco was in the courtyard surrounded by a number of young men who curiously questioned him, tell us the name of the one who will die? Don Bosco smilingly shook his head to indicate that he would not say. But the young man insisted, if you don't want to tell us, at least tell Don Rua or tell us the initial of his name. But Don Bosco kept shaking his head until he, he finally said, do you really want to know? All right. The one who received the note from that mysterious man bears a name that begins with the same initials as Mary's. Before very long, the whole household knew Don Bosco's answer. Everyone wanted to guess, but it wasn't easy because more than 30 pupils had last names beginning with the letter M. Thank you all for watching, and please come back Friday for the conclusion of this incredible story. In the meantime, you might check out this other video that I put on the screen in which St. John Bosco's oratory is almost destroyed in the middle of the night. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. You want a bone for sitting still so long? Come on. Good boy. Come to think of it, my last name begins with the letter M. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. This is part two of St. John Bosco's dream, Death's Messenger. And if you haven't seen part one yet, I'd recommend clicking on the link in the description below. A month had passed since Don Bosco's announcement of the impending death of one of the boys, and the apprehension his words produced was waning in some. Many, however, kept asking, who will die? When will he die? They noticed when the Feast of Easter, or Pasch, came and went. On April 25th, Maestro, age 13, a native of Viora Mondovi, died suddenly from a cerebral hemorrhage. He was a young man of excellent virtue who received Holy Communion several times a week. Until the predicted day, he had generally enjoyed perfect health, but for two weeks he had been afflicted with pain in his eyes, and in the evenings his vision became blurry. He also felt pain in his stomach. The doctor ordered him not to get out of bed with the others in the morning, but to rest until later. Don Bosco met him on the stairs one morning and asked, Do you want to go to heaven? Yes, Maestro replied. Then get ready. The young man stared at him. He was a little disturbed, but believing that Don Bosco was joking, he immediately calmed himself. Don Bosco kept close to him for a few days, preparing him with prudent warnings and induced the boy to make a general confession. On April 24th, another young man, seeing Maestro sitting on the balcony of the infirmary, had an idea. He approached Don Bosco and asked, Is it true that Maestro wants to die? What do I know about that? replied Don Bosco. Why don't you ask him yourself? The young man went up to the balcony and questioned Maestro. He laughed and asked Don Bosco for permission to spend time with his family. Gladly, Don Bosco agreed, but before you leave, have the doctor give you a letter explaining your illness. This answer greatly consoled the young man, who reasoned that the boy in Don Bosco's dream was supposed to die in the oratory. If I go home, it's a sign that it's not me, he thought, so I'll take a long vacation and return to the oratory healed. On Friday, April 25th, Maestro rose in the morning with the others and attended Holy Mass. 
He returned to his room, feeling very tired, and went back to bed, telling his friends how happy he was about going home. At nine o'clock, the school bell rang. His friends said their goodbyes to Maestro and wished him a happy vacation and a safe return. They went to their classrooms, and he remained alone in the dormitory. Then, around ten o'clock, the nurse came by, warning Maestro that the doctor would arrive shortly, so she told him to get up and come to the infirmary to speak to the doctor so he could ask for the note he agreed upon with Don Bosco. But before we get to the conclusion of the story, I'd like to ask that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put in the description below, or you'll see a little icon pop up for it at the end of the video. Shortly after that, the doctor arrived. A young man from the next room who was also ill stood at Maestro's door and said loudly, Maestro, it's time for us to go to the doctor. He called him twice, but Maestro didn't answer. Thinking he had fallen asleep, the friend approached the bed and shook him. Maestro was motionless. The frightened friend cried out, Maestro is dead. He ran to tell someone and first ran into Don Rua, who rushed to absolve Maestro as he breathed his last breath. He immediately warned Don Alisonati and called Don Bosco. The news of that death spread like wildfire through the schoolrooms and workshops. Many rushed and knelt to pray for the soul of the deceased. Some hoped that Maestro was still alive, but Don Bosco knew that he was dead. Everyone's heart filled with grief, especially because Maestro had departed this world without even a friend nearby. Seeing the shocked young men, Don Bosco assured them of Maestro's eternal health. He had taken Holy Communion on Wednesday, and from the Feast of All Saints Day in November until that day, he had behaved so that his soul was well disposed and prepared for death. The clerics and young people followed one another in going to see the dead boy and to mourn their loss. They acknowledged that his death fulfilled the dream. In the evening, Don Bosco gave a moving talk that drew tears from everyone. He pointed out how God had taken two companions from them in the span of nine or ten days without either of the boys being able to receive the last comforts of our holy religion, that is, the last rites. How deceived are they, he exclaimed, who say that they will wait until the end of their life to clean up their conscience and put their affairs in order. But we thank the Lord that by such a death he has called to eternity two companions whose souls were sure have been found in a good state. How much greater would be our sorrow if the Lord had allowed others to be taken from us, friends who continually behaved poorly. This death was a blessing from the Lord. Many young people asked to make a general confession on Saturday morning and evening. Don Bosco put them at peace with absolution. Then later he said, Maestro is the one that I saw in the dream receiving the note. What greatly consoles me is that he received the holy sacraments on Friday morning, so his death was indeed sudden, but he wasn't unprepared. At midday on Sunday, April 27th, Maestro's body was brought to the cemetery. One circumstance also fulfilled Don Bosco's prophecy of that death. When Don Bosco had dreamed of the tall older man who presented the note to Maestro, he saw the man under the porch facing the passageway that led to the vegetable gardens. From that place, the stranger pointed to the coffin in the passage, just a few steps away. 
When the undertakers came to bury Maestro, passing by the central staircase, they carried the coffin under the porch to the garden entrance and asked for chairs, and they arranged them there. They waited for the priests and the students to accompany them to the Campo Santo. Don Caliero, seeing the coffin at that exact location, was upset because usually the chairs were placed at the end of the entrance by the staircase near the church. He insisted that the coffin be moved to its usual place, but the morticians grumbled in annoyance and wouldn't move it. Don Bosco came out of the church and observed the coffin. Look, he said, I saw it right here in the dream. None of the students knew that Maestro was the dying boy, but two in the oratory knew his name and had also known a few other things. At the end of February, a student who had been out of the oratory for some time died. Two senior clerics, one of whom was Don Caliero, heard of the death and announced the loss when he met Don Bosco, who was descending to the courtyard. Don Bosco replied, he will not be the only one. Before two months pass, two others will have to die. He disclosed their names to the two priests. Don Bosco would disclose such matters in strict secrecy to someone he knew to be level-headed and trustworthy, so that without tipping off the boys in question, that trusted priest might encourage them to be good and receive the sacraments, while safeguarding them from spiritual danger. The two clerics gladly assumed the office of guardian angel that day, but they wrote down the prophecy, the date on which Don Bosco had announced it, and the two boys' names, and then they signed the paper. They went to the prefecture, affixed their seals, and deposited it there to be carefully guarded. Don Caliero, 47 years after that day, confirmed what we had described here. He still recalled the compassion he had toward those two when he saw them running happily up and down the courtyard and playing without any thought of the fate that awaited them, though it was not an unhappy fate. He recalled the fulfillment of the prophecy at the appointed time and the prefect's emotion when the note written two months earlier was unsealed. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. This is the story of how St. John Bosco's oratory was investigated by three senators, and in hearing the answers that he gave to their questions, you get a unique insight into his humility, his charity, and he tells us so much about the history of the oratory. So this is an episode that you don't want to miss. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco's tireless efforts made the oratory, in turn, the topic of much discussion. Once they forgot their initial concerns, many people respected the oratory and spoke well of it. Based on the facts, everyone judged it to be a useful and timely means of preventing so many poor young men from falling into delinquency. Instead, the oratory made them into good Catholics and honest citizens. The good results were evident to all and couldn't be denied. The government took an active interest in the work of the oratory based on public and private reports and, eventually, a vote of the Senate. At that time, Signori Volpotto, a kindly relative of the Gastaldi family who held an important government position, advised Don Bosco to place the oratory under government protection. Don Bosco didn't consent, so Signori Volpotto had the Senate pass a resolution asking the government to grant subsidies to the oratory. 
The Senate appointed a commission to visit the oratory, obtain information, and report back. The honorable commission comprised three senators, Count Frederic Skolpis, Marquis Ignatius Pallavicini, and Count Louis Colegno. In January 1850, the three nobles went to the oratory in Valdoco in the afternoon. It was about two o'clock, and more than 500 boys were engaged in recreation, providing visitors with a most welcome sight. The gentlemen were much impressed when they saw such a large crowd of boys gathered together, running, jumping, doing gymnastics, and even walking on stilts, assisted here and there by priests and laymen. Count Skolpis exclaimed, what a beautiful sight. Beautiful indeed, replied the Marquis Pallavicini. Turin would be fortunate, added Count Colegno, if more of these institutions were established. Sculpis agreed. That way we would not be offended so often by the many young people who scamper through the streets and squares on feast days. Don Bosco, standing in a circle of boys, noticed and approached these men. Then, after they greeted one another, a conversation took place. Count Sculpis said, we were observing with awe the spectacle of so many young boys enjoying themselves. We know that the soul behind this is Don Bosco. Would your excellency introduce us to him? Don Bosco replied, I am Don Bosco. He begged them to follow him and led them into his little room. After they sat down, Count Sculpius went on, I very much enjoy making your acquaintance today. The name of Don Bosco has already been known to me by reputation only till now. Don Bosco answered, not by my merits, but rather the boy's chatter. Count Sculpis explained their purpose. The Senate has heard of your work, and we have been commissioned to gather information to report on it. I am Count Sculpis. This is the Marquis Pallavicini, and this is Count Colegno. This poor institute has had many welcome visits, Don Bosco said but this visit will certainly be counted among the most precious. So ask away, and I shall gladly answer as best as I can. Count Sculpis went first. What is the purpose of this oratory? Don Bosco explained, The purpose is to gather as many boys as possible on Sundays and holy days. Because they've been abandoned or are strangers to the area, the boys wander and play around the city instead of going to the sacred services and catechism study. Here, however, they are engaged in happy recreation under the eyes of various assistants. In the mornings, they find comfort in approaching the holy sacraments to hear mass and a short sermon adapted to them. Then in the afternoon, after a few hours of honest recreation, they gather in the chapel for catechism to sing vespers, receive instruction and benediction. So the purpose is to gather boys and make them into honest citizens by making them good Catholics. With God's help, a similar one was opened at the Villa Real, the Valentino, Don Bosco said, and a third was inaugurated just now in the Borgo di Vancilia. Count Colegno exclaimed, very good. Count Scolpis asked, how many boys attend this place? Don Bosco said, generally around 500 and often more. The same numbers attend the other locations. Count Colegno considered this, so on average, 1,500 boys are living in this city who have been gathered by a providential hand and have been directed on the path of morality and honor utilizing the Catholic faith. It's a great benefit for this metropolis. It's a great support for our government. When did you begin this work? Marquis Pallavicini asked. Don Bosco replied, 
I began to take care of the poor boys as early as 1841. By experience, I found that many were not wicked, though a little unruly, but if left to themselves, they could easily wind up in prison. Count Sculpis agreed. This work is of great social importance. The government should promote and support it. The royal family will appreciate this work and give it their support. Now, how do you keep order and discipline with so many boys? Count Colenio asked. Don Bosco answered, Reason, patience, and charity are the only means. Here, kindness prevails over punishment. Indeed, kindness reigns alone. Marquis Pallavicini said, This method should be adopted in other institutes, especially in prisons. Then we would no longer need so many guards and police. Even better, the hearts of so many who leave worse than when they came in would be reformed. At this point, a boy of about 12 years old came knocking at the door of the little room to run an errand for Don Bosco, who made him stay to talk to the nobles. Count Sculpis liked the boy's confidence and innocence and questioned him. What is your name? My name is Giuseppe Vanzino. What town are you from? Varese. What profession are you learning? The Count asked. Stonemason. Do you still have your parents? The Count asked. My father is dead, the boy answered. And your mother? At this question, the good boy lowered his eyes, bowed his head, and became ashamed and silent. Count Sculpis persisted. Do you still have your mother? Is she perhaps also dead? My mother's in prison, the boy admitted, and began to cry. At this, the Count, his companions, and Don Bosco were all softened, and tears appeared in their eyes. Then, after a moment's silence, the good gentleman resumed his discourse and said, Poor son, I pity you. But where are you going to sleep tonight? Up to now, I've been sleeping in my master's house, the boy answered, wiping his eyes. But Don Bosco promised to take me into his hostel today. How? Count Sculpis asked Don Bosco. In addition to the oratory, you keep a charitable hostel? Don Bosco explained, Yes, presently I host about 40 boys, mostly orphans or abandoned. They eat and sleep here, and they work in the city. This is a miracle of Catholic charity, Marquis Pallavicini observed. Count Colenio asked, But where do you obtain the means to feed and shelter so many boys? Now, providing food and clothing is a somewhat difficult task, Don Bosco agreed. Most of them earn nothing or just a meager income, not enough to feed and clothe themselves. But up to this point, divine providence has not yet failed me. I'm confident that God will be so generous that I plan to enlarge the hostel to increase the number of my boys. After visiting the dormitory, they were ushered into the kitchen. Mama Margarita was putting back plates and pots. This is my mother, said Don Bosco. She's the mother of our orphans. Apparently, you also do the cooking, don't you? Count Sculpis asked. Mama Margarita answered, To earn heaven, we do a little bit of everything. Now, what do you feed the boys? Count Sculpis asked. Bread and soup, soup and bread. How many courses does Don Bosco enjoy at meals? The Count asked. Only one course, Margarita replied. Isn't that too little? Just one course? But perhaps a very good quality for him, the Count inquired. Margarita explained, he eats the same meal morning and evening, from Sunday to Thursday. Why not from Sunday to Sunday? The Count asked. Friday and Saturday are meatless days, so I make a lean meal for him, Margarita said. 
I understand, the Count said. I can tell that you're a very economical cook. Is anyone helping you? I have a good helper, she answered. But today he's busy, and I'm working alone. Who's your kitchen boy? Marquis Pallavicini asked. Margaret smiled and pointed at Don Bosco. There he is. I rejoice with you, Don Bosco, the Count said. But with all my heart and behalf of my colleagues, I must tell you that we depart from here highly satisfied. As Catholics, citizens, and senators of the kingdom, we applaud your work and vow that it will prosper and spread. Before departing, Count Sculpice gave Don Bosco a donation for his neediest youngsters. All three senators became benefactors of his work from that day forward. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear how St. John Bosco saw Death's messenger in a dream, please click on the video I put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. I've done around 70 episodes about St. John Bosco's life on this channel, and I can tell you that today's story, without a shadow of a doubt, is my absolute favorite, because it talks about his loving kindness towards the Oratory Boys, a virtue that can only be born from charity. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. While Don Bosco attended to the religious and moral well-being of more than 700 young people who were part of the festive oratory of St. Francis de Sales, he also watched over the thousand young people who attended oratories of St. Louis Gonzaga and the Guardian Angel, never forgetting about the poor youngsters of his growing hospice. Indeed, he regarded them as the apple of his eye, and he cared for them as much as the most solicitous and affectionate fathers would have. One year, his pupils numbered about 40. Parish priests, relatives, and others wrote to him almost continuously to recommend some child to be put in his care. Don Bosco listened to so many miseries, and he felt greatly moved by them. Fearing that a given boy would come to a bad end if he refused to receive him, he often took the child in. He couldn't resist, especially the appeals made by the youngsters themselves. In 1884, the school inspector of La Spezia, Signore Bonino Alvaro, told us the following incredible account of something he witnessed when he attended the oratory as a catechist, being a municipal elementary teacher in 1850. A father had become a Protestant in Turin to receive 30 denarii which the enemies of God paid for apostasies. The wretch demanded that his wife and son likewise convert to Protestantism. Still, the good woman was firm in religion and held her son back also. They were Savoyards from an area in northwestern Italy ruled by the Savoy dynasty. Because of her husband's wretched apostasy, the poor mother wept and prayed. One night, her son had a dream. He felt that he was being dragged to the temple of the Protestants and struggled in vain to resist. While he was struggling in the dream, a priest appeared freed him and led him away. He awoke in the morning and described the dream to his mother. She sought every chance to shelter her son in some institution, for his father would not abandon his wicked divisiveness. She came across a person who advised her to visit Don Bosco in Valdoco to see if she could find refuge for her son in the oratory. She went there with her boy on a Sunday morning. They entered church when she learned it was time for mass and Don Bosco proceeded to celebrate. Signore Bonino Alvaro knelt beside the little boy. 
Then, as soon as the boy saw Don Bosco, he cried out, Mama! Mama! It's him! It's him! It's really him! That's the priest who appeared in my dream! The little boy screamed and his mother cried. After reminding the family that the church was no place to scream like that, Signore Bonino saw that he could not quiet the little boy. So he led the mother and son to the sacristy, where he heard the account of the dream and how the son recognized the liberating priest in Don Bosco. When our saint returned to the sacristy after having finished celebrating the sacrifice of the mass, and before he could remove his vestments, the boy ran to clasp his knees, pleading, My father, save me! Don Bosco accepted the boy into the oratory, and the young man stayed there for many years. How many other endangered young men did Don Bosco save once he met them himself and welcomed them into his home? One day he entered a particular cafe in Turin, and a young man came to serve him. As the apprentice poured coffee, Don Bosco began to ask about his life. Question by question, the priest sounded out the boy's heart. Don Bosco's fatherly manners won over the young man. He kept no secrets from Don Bosco and revealed to him the entire state of his soul, which was deplorable. The conversation was interrupted from time to time as the young man went to serve new patrons. Still, he always returned to Don Bosco's side upon finishing his duties. Don Bosco spoke in a whisper, and no one, not even the cafe's owner, noticed that they were having such a serious discussion. Don Bosco ended by saying to him, Ask your master's permission to come to the oratory, and then some things can be decided. But my master will never allow this, the apprentice said. But you must not stay any longer in this place, Don Bosco replied. I know, I understand that, the young man answered. But how do I do it? Just run away, Don Bosco said. But where to, the young man protested. Don Bosco suggested, to your relatives. I have none, the apprentice explained. They're all dead. I'm completely alone. Then come with me, the priest invited him. To where? To Valdoco, at the address I'll give you, Don Bosco said. And then what? Don Bosco answered, get your belongings and run to me as soon as possible. Make sure no one knows your intention and just come. You won't be lacking in bread. You'll have a roof over your head and an education and I will provide you with a happy future. I will be your father. Don Bosco left the workshop. The next day, the young man escaped and arrived at the oratory with his few belongings under his arm. He became an excellent Christian and was the model for the students of the oratory for several years. Thank you all so much for watching, and I really do think that's my favorite story from St. John Bosco so far. If you'd like to watch another story about St. John Bosco, just click on the video I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This is the story of how St. John Bosco found himself in the middle of the woods in pouring rain and set upon by villagers with pitchforks. Let's see how he gets out of it. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. During the first weeks after his ordination, Don Bosco made a round of visits in response to many insistent invitations to express his gratitude to all those who had helped him or merely expressed their goodwill. Don Bosco chose an excellent young man to be a traveling companion. 
he left early in the morning from Montaldo, where he had lodged with the rector. After a stop to have lunch with the parish priest of Coconato, he resumed his journey and set out for Panzano, although the hour was already late. Unfortunately, he took a wrong turn and found himself lost in the thick of a forest. The night was approaching, the sky was covered with dense clouds, and a storm seemed imminent. Don Bosco and his companion continued a bit farther down that path, but by night they got disoriented and even lost the trail. The air was lit up only by continuous flashes of lightning, accompanied by thunderous crashes. The two men could no longer see each other, and to top it off, a downpour of rain quickly drenched them from head to toe. The darkness and the thick underbrush made it impossible to continue their journey. What should they do now? They surrendered to their misfortune. Upon finding a place to be somewhat undercover, they sat down to wait for the storm to subside. The loneliness, darkness, lightning, thunder, whistling of the wind, creaking of breaking branches, the mournful moaning of some bird disturbed by sleep, all these things frightened them. The storm's fury made them decide to seek refuge elsewhere. Having recited a prayer to Blessed Mary, Don Bosco stood up and said to his companion, let us go in this direction, it must lead someplace. So they did, and after a short walk, they heard the cry of a rooster. The crowing revived them to continue their journey with more confidence. Then as they advanced, they heard dogs barking and a cat meowing. At last, some light appeared, indicating houses were nearby. Oh, here's a village, they happily exclaimed. They hurried on, and the fragrance of baking bread came toward them. Before long, they saw some people gathered around an oven. The two men approached the people, but as soon as the group became aware of their presence, they left everything behind, fled back into the house, and shut themselves up in fear, leaving the visitors in astonishment and dismay. Don Bosco approached the house. Do not fear, he said. Come out. We're good people who have lost our way and can hardly stand, soaked by the rain. We mean you no harm. Come and tend to your bread or it will burn. But it was as if he was speaking to deaf people. They wouldn't listen to reason. After much pleading, they opened the door a little, just enough to be able to look outside. Then some armed men showed up bearing knives, pitchforks, and sides. Finally, they questioned Don Bosco about who he was and what village he wanted to reach. Don Bosco said, I'm a poor priest and this is a friend of mine. We were on our way to Panzano, but unfortunately we lost our way. We intend you no harm whatsoever. In the meantime, the storm ceased and many people came around to welcome the strangers. Don Bosco managed to reassure those armed with pitchforks so thoroughly that they returned to the bakery and conversed with him. He asked why they had been so afraid, and they answered that those regions were infested with murderers. On the previous night, some people had been murdered in that same village. They added that the royal carabinieri, the policemen, were searching the countryside for the criminals who were still at large. Don Bosco then asked someone to lead them to Ponzano, but the villagers told him he was too far from that destination. So then Don Bosco asked them to lend him and his companion some dry clothes, for he was dripping wet through to the skin. Those good people excused themselves by saying that they were poor. However, they did point him to a wealthy gentleman who lived nearby who could provide the two men with what they needed. Don Bosco asked that they give him a guide because he didn't know that part of the country very well. 
After hesitating, they rearmed themselves with pitchforks and scythes. Such was their fear of the murderers. Then they set off with Don Bosco and his companion. Taking a narrow path that zigzagged up a hill, they arrived at the foot of a castle overlooking the entire township. The path was sunken between two high hedges, but as they reached the boundary wall, two large mastiffs barked loudly. The party halted, seeing that it was dangerous to advance. But before we finish the story, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link I've put in the description below. Loudly, they called the master and announced the arrival of the two lost travelers. The master, an old man by the name of Signore Miolio, was one of those old-fashioned, good-natured types of people, all heart and charity. He came at once, called off the dogs, and ushered Don Bosco and his young friend into the house with a warm welcome. Though the night was already far advanced, he had in his drawing room a gathering of friends with whom he played games to pass the time. Everyone stood up when Don Bosco appeared. The old man invited the priest to sit down and asked who he was. As soon as he learned that the new priest was from Castelnuovo, the old man began to list the friends he knew in that town and its vicinity. The Britannia family, the pastor, and Father Lacqua. The old man was delighted that a priest who knew his friends should have happened to come to his home that night. He quickly provided dry clothing and covered Don Bosco with his cloak. Then he had a good supper prepared to refresh the two men. The old man talked about a thousand different things and made pleasant conversation. After dinner, Signore Miolio said, This castle has a chapel. If you favor us tomorrow, we can attend your mass. You would be giving a great gift to my lady, who professes great devotion to the things of the church. Don Bosco gladly agreed, and around midnight he went to bed. The next day at dawn, the bell announced mass in the castle, and everyone from the surrounding hamlets flocked to hear it. Don Bosco wanted to resume his journey to Ponzano immediately, but still the good gentleman wouldn't allow him to leave at all. Instead, he led Don Bosco to visit the castle keep, which had such a severe appearance that it put chills down one's back. After touring the outer circle of walls, Don Bosco observed dark tunnels that went into the hill. The master of the castle said, No one has dared to explore these dungeons, which are very extensive because thieves, murderers, and perhaps counterfeit coin beaters are certain to have taken refuge there. Some come and go. Now they're here, now they're not. But no man is so brave as to venture in there. Even the Carabinieri would not. Inside the castle, among other things, the old man showed him a beautiful library, where Don Bosco asked for a book titled Compendium of Ecclesiastical History by Lorenzo Berti Florentino. The master gladly brought him a copy, and Don Bosco wrote on the last page of it, the year 1841, October 14th, after having walked several hours in the night along an unfamiliar road, I appeared at the castle of the Merletti near Moncalvo, where I was received and treated with the most generous hospitality by the apothecary Signore Miolio. I obtained this book from him to have a grateful memory of him. Don Bosco always kept this book with him. After a hearty lunch, the good gentleman wanted to accompany Don Bosco and his companion in walking a good stretch of the road to Ponzano. In the account of this adventure, Don Bosco never hinted at any displeasure about the hardships he suffered. 
All kinds of difficulties became the cause for humorous stories and happy memories for him. Patience and calmness of mind are always the hallmarks of Don Bosco. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. This is a supernatural vision sent to St. John Bosco that's titled The Dream of the Fourteen Tables. And you might be wondering by the end which table you'd be sitting at. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On Sunday, the Solemnity of Our Lady of the Snows, a first mass was celebrated and sung by Father Rua, who was assisted by Don Bosco. All received communion, knowing this to be the desire of the new priest. The joy of all present can't be imagined. A fervent enthusiasm animated all the pupils who couldn't find enough ways to show their affection to Father Rua. Twenty-seven compositions were read in the academy, and a recurring theme of the compositions was stated by cleric Francis Fischetti. You are a model for priests, the example of clerics, the teacher in virtue and science, of students, the counselor, of artists, the guide, of the sick, you're the relief, of the afflicted, you're the comfort, of all, you're the cheerfulness. You are loved and admired by all. In your heart, you're another Don Bosco, and already everyone is noting you to be his worthy successor. The whole day was spent in continuous acclaim, long live Father Rua, who strove to redirect these praises to St. John Bosco. It was a vivid image of the triumph of charity. Father Rua, in the close talk with the academy, called the young men his brothers. He thanked them, asked for prayers and forgiveness if he had sometimes had to reproach someone. He promised them limitless affection, and he ended by praising Don Bosco, who he said was his and their dear father. Don Bosco closed the feast by telling them the following dream in the evening. There were all my young men in a beautiful garden. From the ground, steps rose so high that one could hardly see the top. There were fourteen long tables arranged in a vast amphitheater, and as if divided into three tiers, each supported by a wall that formed a shelf. At the bottom, around a table, set on the bare ground, devoid of all ornaments and pottery, could be seen a number of young men. They were sad and had in front of them bread, However, it was all rancid and moldy. It was disgusting. The bread on the table was amidst filth and acorns. These poor boys stood like swine at the trough. I wanted to tell them that they should throw away that bread. However, I contented myself with asking why they had such nauseating food before them. They answered, we must eat the bread we have prepared for ourselves, and it's all we have. This table symbolized the state of mortal sin. As it states in Proverbs, chapter 1, they hated discipline and did not embrace the fear of the Lord, and they did not lend their ears to my counsel and mocked my corrections. They shall therefore eat the fruits of their works and hail themselves of their counsels. But at the higher tables, the young men were more cheerful and ate precious bread. They were beautiful, resplendent, and of ever-increasing beauty and splendor. Their very rich tables were covered with tablecloths of special linen, set with candelabras, wine, cups, vases of indescribably beautiful flowers, plates with delicious food, and treasures of inestimable value. A large number of boys were there. 
These tables symbolize the state of repentant sinners. Finally, the last buffets at the top had bread that I can't define. It looked yellow, it looked red, and the same color of the bread was that of the clothing and the faces of the young men, all of which shone with the brightest light. These boys enjoyed an extraordinary cheerfulness, and each one tried to share it with the other companions. In their loveliness, light, and splendor, they far surpassed all those who occupied the lower tables. These tables symbolized the state of those who had retained their baptismal innocence. Of the innocent and the converted, the Holy Spirit says in Proverbs chapter 1, He who obeys me will have rest without fear, and will be in abundance free from the fear of evil. But most astonishing was that I knew those young men. I recognized all of them from first to last, so that seeing one of them now, I seemed to see him still there, seated in his place at that table. While I was amazed at that spectacle, I saw a man somewhat far away. I ran to question him, but in the meantime, I stumbled over something and woke up, finding myself in bed. You had asked me about this dream, and now I've told you. However, don't make more of it than such a thing might deserve. The next day, Don Bosco privately told each pupil what place he occupied at those tables. To manifest the order that each held, he began from highest to lowest. He was asked if one from a lower table could go up to a higher one. He answered yes, except going to the one that towered above all the others was impossible. It was the place intended only for those who retained their baptismal innocence. The number of these were small, but great was that of the second order and the third. Don Rufino Domenico and Don Turchi Giovanni, witnesses who heard and were present, left us the narration of this dream and even the name of someone who was seated at the primary table. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see another video about how St. John Bosco was attacked by villagers with pitchforks, just click on the link I put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. In the city of Turin, Italy, during the 19th century, there were two forces vying for the attention of the beaten down worker class, Masonic sects who promoted Marxist class struggle ideology, and St. John Bosco, who opposed these sects in peaceful movements based on Catholic charity and love of order in society. Don Bosco was making so much headway with his mutual aid society that the Masons knew he had to be stopped, even if it was by murderous attempts on his life. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. A tavern known as the Giardiniera, or Gardener, stood across from the door to Valdoco's church, separated from the churchyard by a wall. The tavern was the refuge of thieves, the haunt of vagrants, gamblers, drunkards, traveling musicians, bear tamers, the idlers of all kinds continually gathered there. And so did the members of the then-nascent liberal worker societies, whose main headquarters were in a basement in the alley of Santa Maria. The secret heads of the society were some Protestants and certain gentlemen of very bad behavior. In previous years, even when the Giardiniera's former patrons caused a disturbance, they were not expressly hostile against the oratory. But this year, the rowdies evidently wanted to annoy Don Bosco and offend him with trivial swearing during church services. 
The troublemakers paid other scoundrels to make the oratory feel their anger. Don Bosco saw the need to remove that army of the devil, but it wasn't an easy task. The expense of fighting against them was huge, and offending that rabble was dangerous. They were ready to commit violence rather than allow Don Bosco to occupy a house he considered his domain. Don Bosco experienced several disgusting proofs of this. One day, he was called to the sacristy, where some men waited for him, and he thought that they wanted to go to confession. But as soon as he entered, they closed the doors. Then several young men, including Buzzetti and Arnaud, suspected some plot, so they passed into the presbytery, and there they stood eavesdropping and watching through the keyhole of the sacristy door. They heard loud, excited talk from those wicked men who had come to argue with Don Bosco. With a few words, he confounded them, but they began to spout angry vulgarities at him. Don Bosco tried to calm them down, but they became even more heated and drew their knives. At this point, the lurking youths made a noise and broke down the door, and the angry wretches fled through the doorway into the courtyard. In the meantime, among the older ones, boys who belonged to the Mutual Aid Society were deserting the oratory without any reason. One day, two elegantly dressed gentlemen stopped one of the older boys who spoke French. After a cordial conversation, they offered him a large sum of money, about 600 liras, and a promise that they would find him a job if he left the oratory and led away other boys over whom he had great influence. He was indignant at this offer. He answered them, Don Bosco is my father, and I will not abandon him or betray him for all the gold in the world. Those gentlemen were not offended at this. Instead, they begged him to reflect, and several other times they renewed their offer of money. He always refused. Don Bosco understood then how money had seduced certain unfortunate boys to leave the oratory. Don Bosco decided it was prudent to keep these facts secret to avoid arousing the greed of some boys who were more unstable in virtue. At the same time, he thought it wise to pray and to redouble his vigilance and enticements to keep the boys in the oratory. Don Bosco's worker society grew in number for several years. Some artists from the city, who were excellent Christians, were admitted to the society so that they might give direction to the novices by their example. In 1856, the society was flourishing. Don Bosco had two serious motives behind his hard work for this institution. He was among those few who understood from the beginning, and he said this a thousand times, that the revolutionary movement was not a passing whirlwind. Not all the promises made to the people were dishonest, and many responded favorably to the movement's universal living aspirations. They wished to achieve equal rights without class distinctions and sought greater justice and improvement of their fortunes. On the other hand, Don Bosco saw how riches were becoming the monopoly of people who lacked any pity. Employers were imposing unjust contracts regarding both wages and the duration of work, and workers were brutally prevented from observing holy days. These efforts resulted in the workers' loss of religious faith, the misery of families, and adherence instead to subversive teachings. Don Bosco deemed it necessary for the clergy to approach the people. He couldn't expand his mutual aid society to meet the needs of the times. 
However, he considered raising a large number of almshouses for young artisans, but he foresaw that directing and administering the work, supervising payment records, and distributing relief would be impossible in the long run. He resisted discouragement and progressed toward his goals, but then he had to stop, especially because those who could help didn't support his efforts. Indeed, his efforts became a target of their criticism. He did, however, have the merit of giving many other Catholic workers' associations the first idea and model that they could follow to improve their lot, appease their calls for justice, and thereby remove them from the tyrannical influence of the revolutionaries. The first of the Italian Catholic Workers' Unions was established in Turin in 1871 at the instigation of a handful of generous young men. Unfortunately, the Masonic secret societies had already made headway among the workers and the established mutual aid societies, which they exploited for their own ends. Those Christian unions grew in number throughout the Piedmont and other parts of Italy, and they had assistance from the church, which gave great advantage to the Catholic cause and offered great consolation to Don Bosco. Several of these unions proclaimed him their honorary president with certificates and diplomas. The Spirit of the Lord hovered over the world and provided for new needs with new institutions. In Germany, Father Kolping founded a Catholic society of young apprentices who came to number tens of thousands with branches of their own in many cities. France also set a noble example. Among others, Leo Harmel, known as the father of the worker, became a close friend of Don Bosco's because of their shared sentiments. From these facts, it's clear that St. John Bosco managed to influence public opinion at the time to have a greater love for the worker in a Catholic sense while also opposing Masonic, Socialist, and Communist ideologies. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about Masonic attempts on St. John Bosco's life, please click on the videos I put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Today's episode involves a series of stories that definitively prove St. John Bosco's ability to predict the future, and as I read them, I couldn't help but wonder what an incredible grace it would have been to have lived alongside this modern-day prophet. These testimonies are from members of Don Bosco's Society of St. Aloysius, so first we'll talk a bit about that. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The Society of St. Aloysius flourished in the oratories of Porta Nuova and Ventilia, but it bore the most abundant fruits in Valdoco, where Don Bosco presided. Once a year, he invited the day students to eat at his table. Occasionally, he held these gatherings in the chapel, and a secretary took the minutes. These meetings included the best day students and boarders because Don Bosco wanted them all to be members of the society. They were eager to sign up and wear the Medal of St. Aloysius. This society was also joined by illustrious members of the Turinese nobility as honorary members. 
They eagerly attended the feasts, wore the Medal of St. Aloysius, and accompanied the processions. Don Bosco used to say, remember that St. Aloysius spent several hours each day before the Blessed Sacrament. More than his other companions, he loved those who despised him. When he was still a layman, he went to the church to teach catechism to the ignorant, corrected their morals, and acted as a peacemaker with them. While instructing the poor in Rome, St. Aloysius led them to some confessor so that they might be absolved of their faults and restored to the grace of God. When we can't catechize our poor youngsters, let us lead them where others will instruct them. How many souls will we raise from the path of sin and put them back on that road that leads to salvation? And then how many graces will St. Aloysius obtain for us from God? Don Bosco's words were adequate because of the sanctity of his life and because of everyone's belief that he had special powers. St. Paul teaches us, he who is united with the Lord is one in spirit with him. As for Don Bosco, God wanted to reward his exalted virtues with supernatural graces and gifts. Those gave him great help in procuring divine glory and the health of souls. They also manifested his heavenly mission to other people, for he possessed the prophetic spirit, the scrutiny of hearts, the cognition of supernatural things, the gift of tears, and the gift of healings and miracles. Don Ascanio Savio, who lived in the oratory from 1848 to 1852, and Don Vachetta, his companion, both attest that Don Bosco announced that God would bless his designs and works from the beginning. He spoke to them of the oratory that they would watch develop. Don John Turki, who came to the hospice in 1851, confirmed how even then Don Bosco spoke of a great house, great workshops, and especially his own printing press to promote the glory of God by publishing good books. He intended to spread and preserve religion and virtue in the young and oppose the Protestant errors and the flood of bad books. John Villa, who began to attend the oratory as an outsider in 1855, heard confirmation of these prophecies from many companions who had participated in the festive gatherings in Valdoco for many years before he arrived. Others told him to motivate the members of the St. Aloysius Society, Don Bosco sometimes said he had seen the wonderful growth and development of the festive oratories in a dream, indicating without naming it his future community. He was telling them about the importance and reach of the society. Out of humility, he called these happenings dreams, but all young men were persuaded that Don Bosco was telling them what he came to know by the gift of prophecy. And the predictions of coming events were fulfilled before their eyes. Don Michele Rua said, From my first days at the oratory, from 1847 to 1852, I remember that whenever some young man of the St. Aloysius Society died, Don Bosco had already announced such an event. He never announced their names. Rather, he would say, in 15 days or a month, someone from the society will be called to eternity. It might be me, it might be one of you. So let's keep ourselves prepared. A healthy fear kept the young men alert to see when each announcement would come true. Sometimes those Don Bosco alluded to were healthy and robust, sometimes ill, but their deaths always occurred within the time predicted. Several times I heard such announcements. Sometimes I heard about them from companions, but we always saw the predictions come true. He predicted the death of my brother and others as well. Luigi Rua was the older brother of Don Michele, 
who died on March 29, 1851, at age 19. He had attended the festive oratory, and his conduct was admirable. But before we continue with these incredible testimonies, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link I've put in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that's going to come up on the screen. Joseph Buzzetti described an event that occurred in 1850. One evening after Don Bosco spoke to members of the St. Aloysius Society at a special meeting and they were all about to leave, he said to them, Count how many are here. The next time we gather, one will be missing. Everyone understood that he was indicating that one of them would die. We asked which one of us would be missing, and at first Don Bosco tried to give an evasive answer. But when pressed, he said that the name of the one who would die began with the letter B. Hearing this frank answer, the young men looked at each other, wondering, who shall this be? Only two were present whose names began with the letter B, and strangely enough, though they were not related, both were called Burzio. The young men commended one another to secrecy and waited to see which of the two would suffer the prophesied fate because both were in excellent health. The younger of the two Burzios was a young St. Aloysius member, and Don Bosco held him in high regard. One Sunday, while Don Bosco was celebrating Mass and the young men attended, this younger Burzio became very still. Then he gave some sorrowful cries and finally fainted. The companions attributed this to the malaise, but Don Bosco, who had heard his cries, wanted to question him about the reason. The young man answered, At the time of the elevation, I saw the host all dripping with blood. And at the same time, I heard a voice saying, this is a picture of how sacrileges in Piedmont will treat Jesus. This holy young man was the one who died before the next meeting. Don Rua added to this account, Don Bosco foretold death and healing many times, even in desperate cases. I remember a certain cleric, Viale, my companion, who fell seriously ill in 1853 with no hope of recovery. Don Bosco came to see him at the hospital and advised him to appeal to a particular saint. I don't know which one, perhaps St. Aloysius, but Don Bosco promised that in three days he would return and find him sitting on the bed, eating, and that he would rise fully recovered. Thus he predicted his recovery, and it came true precisely as he foretold. All the names we have mentioned belong to the young men in the Society of St. Aloysius. They and many others described how God endowed Don Bosco with the gift of reading hearts. They recounted revelations during the sacrament of confession, and outside of that sacrament, revelations that some went on to confide to others. He had known their innermost thoughts and what they had forgotten or held back from previous confessions. Many of us whose conscience was not at peace with God had this strange experience. We seemed to be kept away from Don Bosco almost without our will as he mingled with other boys. At the same time, we felt the need to go to him for confession as soon as possible. When we did, we were astonished to hear Don Bosco tell us precisely what sins we had committed even from many years before. Nevertheless, we found great relief in confessing to him because with his help, we made a clean confession of all our sins and eased our troubled minds. Others went to him with mixed feelings of trepidation and joy, only to be assured that they were in a state of grace, 
or that their confession would be pleasing to God with Don Bosco's help. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear the most interesting prophecy that St. John Bosco has ever made, just click on the video I've put on the screen. Oh, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on this other link that I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Let's go. Today's stories are going to be about St. John Bosco's mother, whom everyone in the oratory called Mama Margarita. She was truly a legendary woman. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Honor your father and mother, says the Lord. Don Bosco offered the young man a model in his observance of this commandment. He was always most tender in loving his parents. He spoke often and fondly of his father, whom he had not even known, and he prayed daily for the repose of his father's soul. For his mother, he showed all the respectful attention worthy of a son, and he consoled her with moving piety in her old age. He never put love for her ahead of love for God, but he assisted and helped her with everything she depended on him for. Don Bosco obeyed her, submitted meekly to her advice, and made no important decisions without mentioning them to her. He was happy to have her help and cooperation for the good of the pupils, and to have her act as a mother to all. Don Bosco spoke of her with veneration and showed her the liveliest gratitude for everything she endured while raising him. He especially commended her because she had taught him to love and serve God, instilling a great horror of sin in him. In later years, he remembered his mother with tenderness and childlike respect. He wanted the boys to obey and respect her. If anyone showed her less than reverence, Don Bosco would mention obedience in his evening sermon, reminding the boys, I'm the director of this house, and I obey my mother and try to respect her. I expect you to do likewise. He would remind them how she worked for them and listed the many ways she helped and served them. He reminded them of the mothers they had left behind at their homes, and repeated the words of Tobias, Thou shalt honor thy mother all the days of her life, for thou must be mindful of the perils she suffered for thee in her womb. Don Bosco never missed an opportunity to honor his mother, Margarita. Her good humor and intelligence were present in even the most solemn moments. The feast day of her namesake fell in November, and the young people always celebrated it affectionately. On the evening before her name day, Don Bosco would have them bring her a big bouquet. The good mother greeted them smiling and listened quietly to the prose and poetry they recited for her. Once they finished, she would reply with a few words. Well, I thank you, though I do nothing for you. The one who really does everything is Don Bosco. However, I thank you for your good wishes and compliments. If Don Bosco permits tomorrow, I will give you all something extra for dinner. Then the cry of Viva Mama Margarita would resound, and the gathering would break up. From Margarita's words, we can see how she had no purpose but to exalt her son in the presence of the youth and make sure they recognized him as the sole authority. Her humility made her dear to all. She was revered by all who knew her, and even by those who only spent a short time with her in the oratory. From the beginning of her time in Turin, she was called by no name other than Mother. 
She treated all with the same gentleness and charity. The duke, the marquis, the wealthy banker, the cobbler, and the chimney sweep. Whenever the many noble lords and ladies, bishops, and distinguished benefactors visited Don Bosco, they always appeared at Margarita's door to greet her as they arrived and left. Her outspoken virtue, simplicity of manner, and exquisite good sense were the objects of their liveliest interest. If they didn't find Don Bosco at home, then they waited by entertaining themselves with Mother Margarita. Those days there was no waiting area, and those gentlemen did not want to intrude or cause a disturbance. They were also reluctant to stand waiting on the balcony in the open air, sun, or rain. So they would knock at Margarita's door and ask, Mother, may we come in? The good woman was always sitting amid a few chairs among piles of the boy's poor and tattered clothes that needed to be patched. Come in, gentlemen, she replied. Clearing the chairs, she invited them to sit down. They were the wealthiest people in Turin, the wittiest, the most knowledgeable, the most reputable. Sometimes, with touching simplicity, she would say, If you allow me, then I'll finish my three Hail Marys. Then I'll be all yours. Go ahead, those gentlemen would reply, smiling. And Margarita would finish her prayer and say, Pax Christi. Then the conversation would begin. But if it sometimes languished, she would start praying other prayers in a whisper. Those gentlemen often spent a half hour and even whole hours with her, questioning and inviting her to talk. They delighted infinitely in her answers, thoughts, and the proverbs that always flourished on her lips. Sometimes, because of their familiarity, they would even ask her questions about morals, history, and politics. Margarita always retained a perfect and serene tranquility. She was never confused, impatient, ashamed, or awkward. Her answers didn't hint at foolishness, presumption, or silliness. Common sense and the catechism often came to her aid. If the visitors ever asked something beyond her understanding, she would reply with some quip or proverb about her ignorance, or tell them instead about something she had seen or heard, or something that had happened to her. These answers pleased her visitors immensely because they had deliberately steered the conversation toward complex topics to see how cleverly this simple woman, who had no formal education, would manage to extricate herself, and Margarita would laugh heartily along with them. Above all, she kept the promise she often made to the benefactors. I will pray for God to help them do their part and grant them all the prosperities they deserve. These notable connections changed nothing in her ideas and customs. Inspired by a love for the privations suffered by our Lord Jesus Christ, she repeated many times, I was born poor and I want to live and die poor. Notwithstanding the great poverty that reigned in the oratory, she used strict justice to give each person what was rightfully theirs. On every occasion, her heart showed itself full of delicate concern for all. One day, with a young boy named Giacomelli, she went to a store in front of the Corpus Christi Church to stock up on needles, thread, and buttons. After she paid for everything, they returned home with her purchases. As they walked, she mentally checked the math and realized that they had underpaid the shopkeeper three or four coins. From that moment, she could no longer be at peace. Going back into the house, she told Giacomelli, return at once to the store to see if they really made a mistake, but be careful to call aside the apprentice who sold us the goods and speak in such a way that the master will not see you. 
The boy did the errand exactly as she told him to. He reported Mother Margarita's words and placed those coins in the apprentice's hand. Surprised, the apprentice asked who had sent him back to the store. It's Don Bosco's mother, replied Giocomelli. Well, tell her I said thank you. Thank you so much, the apprentice said. If you had told the master, I would have been ruined. He would have sent me away for sure, and I would have been left without food to eat. So thank that good lady and tell her to come and do all her shopping in this store because I'll serve her better and give her a more competitive price than anyone else. All of these facts we have learned from Don Asanio Savio, Charles Tomatis, Joseph Buzzetti, and above all, Don Bosco himself. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about how St. John Bosco escaped masons that were trying to assassinate him with long knives, just click on the video I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Did you know that St. John Bosco managed to build an enormous church dedicated to Our Lady Help of Christians? Considering all he was up against, it's a miracle he pulled it off at all, and it's so beautiful too. Well, today's story is about how they blessed the cornerstone of that building and a grand ceremony, and how Father Barrera gave one of the best speeches I've ever heard in honor of St. John Bosco's oratory. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. The slideshow of pictures later on in this video are of the church that St. John Bosco built in turn as it stands today. In June and July of 1851, Don Bosco focused entirely on constructing his new church of Our Lady Help of Christians, never stopping even for a moment. Thanks to the work continuing at full speed, the foundations of the church had risen to ground level. Don Bosco and the other clerics in charge of the oratories presented a petition to the Archbishop at the Curia asking permission to bless its foundation stone. On July 18th, Canon Celestine Fisore granted Don Bosco and another priest the permission and right to conduct that blessing according to the Roman ritual. The canon granted this permission in the name of Archbishop Luigi Franzoni, who was absent. The blessing date was set for July 20th. More than 600 boys of the oratory, many with trumpets, spread this news throughout the city. So that evening, a great crowd gathered at the site, a larger gathering than anyone had ever seen in those parts. Archbishop Franzoni, who loved Don Bosco and his work, would undoubtedly have blessed the stone himself. But alas, this intrepid prelate was living in exile in Lyon. So Canon Anthony Moreno, Bursar General, blessed the cornerstone in his stead. It was set in place by Commander Joseph Cota, who was a great friend of the poor and a distinguished benefactor of Don Bosco's works, and Mayor Bellone cemented the first limestone with his trowel. Father Barreira of the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine was greatly moved by the sight of so many people who had flocked to the event. Supported by the significant number of Turin's priests, patricians, and matrons who crowded around him, Father Barreira mounted a small hill and improvised a spectacular speech. He began with the words, Gentle people, the stone that was blessed and placed in the foundation of this future church has two great meanings. First, it reminds us of the parable of the mustard seed through which many boys will come to seek refuge. Second, it signifies the work of the oratories based on the faith and charity of Jesus Christ. By their efforts, 
it will become an immovable boulder against which the enemies of religion and the spirits of darkness will struggle in vain. Father Barreira then explained each meaning so eloquently that the audience seemed to hang on his words in ecstasy. First, he compared the current times to a hurricane threatening cities and villages with devastation and ruin. He said, in that peril, we see frightened people seeking shelter, people retreating to their homes, the beasts of the field fleeing to their dens, the birds of the air flying to their nests, and they are lucky if they make it to a sturdy and safe tree. For us, the times are getting worse, especially for poor youth. This oratory is a tree that will put down deep roots and not collapse under the howling winds. In the shade of this tree and the enclosure of its sacred edifice, thousands of young people will find shelter and defense against the seeds of errors that are sown today by impious men and degenerate writers. They will find refuge and defense against the adages that destroy every idea of virtue and morality. They will find shelter and defense from the fiery thunderbolts of youthful passions which are aroused by the evil examples and scandals in every class of people. Already I see flocks of young men like terrified doves rising in flight from all sides. They're heading here to find a safe haven. Gathering here, they find shelter, defense, food, and temporal and eternal life nourishment. Gentle people, offer your material and moral support to ensure that this tree grows, spreads its branches over the whole city that gathers so many poor boys underneath it. To the disdain of religion and the decline of morals, these boys find themselves scampering through the streets and squares on feast days, in danger of dishonoring themselves, disgracing their families, and contributing to the disarray and desolation of civil society. O oh lords, you could not employ your charity today in a more useful work for the church and the state. The life or death of families, kingdoms, and the world depends on our youth, whether well-educated or not. The good father concluded by turning to Jesus Christ and making such a beautiful prayer that it drew tears from many. O oh God, our Savior and our Lord, thou art symbolized in this cornerstone. Take this undertaking under thy omnipotent arm. Bless it if it is cursed. Defend it if it is attacked. Love it as the pupil of thine eye if it is hated. It fully deserves thy benevolence because its purpose is to gather, instruct, and educate children who are the joy of thy heart during thy mortal life. Children are and always will be the object of thy most loving attention because they are the little lambs of thy flock the choicest flowers in thy church's garden. May this undertaking forever prosper under thy protection. May its seeds scatter far and wide, carried by the winds of thy grace. May the very foundations of this world collapse before it fades away from the face of the earth. The words of this eloquent religious man had an admirable effect. They seemed divinely inspired and prophetic because they came and continue to come true. When night fell and the crowds left, Don Bosco remained with only the boarding students. Felix Revilio said that this was probably the most impressive project that Don Bosco would ever carry out in his lifetime. Don Bosco replied, Oh, this is nothing. There will be other buildings here and yonder and over there. The young men carefully noted his words and waited for the fulfillment of his predictions. 
However, the new construction was enough to increase the enthusiasm of the oratory's young people. Jewish boys often attended along with them. He welcomed the Jewish boys with joy. He entrusted one to Ascanio Savio for instruction, and the young man ended up being baptized. Many others would have converted willingly, but for the obstacle posed by their families. They attended public schools and were unavoidably exposed to religious instruction, which must have aroused their interest in Christianity. But their parents warned them to beware of Christians as enemies, against whom they were expected to maintain unrelenting hatred. And if any Jewish child showed a leaning toward Catholics, they immediately removed him from the school. If you'd like to hear about how St. John Bosco tried to convert a little Jewish boy that he met on the train, just click on the video I put on the screen. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This is a story about a miracle from St. John Bosco's life that's so beautiful, it reminds me of our Lord multiplying the loaves and fishes. But first, since we began this week talking about Don Bosco's mother, Mama Margaret, I'm gonna tell you about a story from around the same time that shows her great love of the cross. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On returning home from the war, in which he served in the battalions of the Bersaglieri, or sharpshooters, Joseph Brosio continued to attend oratory gatherings with great faithfulness, always showing great affection for Don Bosco. Joseph wore his military uniform whenever he visited the oratory, and because he was experienced in maneuvers and battles, several companions begged Joseph to help them practice. With Don Bosco's consent, he willingly formed a small regiment of the liveliest and most dexterous young men in the oratory. About 200 rifles without barrels were obtained from the government and exercise sticks were provided. Joseph the Bersaglieri, or sharpshooter, also brought his trumpet. After a while, the oratory had a brigade so well trained that it rivaled at least the National Guard. The boys of the oratory all wished to join the unit. The oratory militia kept good order during church services and inside the house on all great solemnities. Sometimes it performed drills so masterfully that the regiment provided a happy spectacle that earned great applause. These training exercises and the gymnastics taught by the Royal Army's methods appealed to several young men who had left the oratory seeking new experiences, and they returned and these exercises stopped others from going who, eager for games and amusements, had wanted to desert sacred services to find them. Even the newspaper sometimes mentioned this militia. Once, however, the small army unintentionally caused great unhappiness to one particular person, Mama Margarita, who was second only to Don Bosco in the hearts of all. As a good homemaker, she had planted a vegetable garden at the back of the courtyard and industriously sowed and cultivated it with great care. It provided lettuce, garlic, onions, peas, carrots, turnips, and a thousand other kinds of vegetables. Even a tiny meadow grew grass for her rabbits. A day of great festivity arrived, and the Bersaglieri blasted his trumpet to gather the militia ranks and divide them into two platoons. He wanted to amuse numerous spectators by staging a mock battle. He designated one of the platoons to simulate defeat. 
Then, to ensure they would not damage Mama Margarita's precious garden, he ordered that the pursuing platoon not step beyond the hedge. He gave the command, charge! The two teams raised a loud shout and began their movements, pointing their wooden rifles at one another. It seemed like a real battle, from the solemn command to the well-ordered charges and discharges of weapons, from the slow advance to the retreats, even including the platoon's exact movements right and left to surprise one another. All that was missing was the thundering of cannons, the crackling of guns, and the falling of dead and wounded. Bystanders were devouring the spectacle with lots of clapping and shouts of bravo. These cheers so fired up the combatants' warlike spirits that the winning side, pressing the vanquished side, no longer observed the terms of surrender. They went so far that the battle was carried right into Mama Margarita's garden. The hedge was toppled and leveled. Everything was trampled and spoiled. The Bersaglieri shouted and blew his trumpet, but the audience's laughter and applause drowned him out. Only a trace of the garden remained when the two squads tidied up. The good Mama Margarita wondered whether the demonstration had been planned to destroy the garden to make the spectacle more intense. With righteous resentment, she turned to her son and said, Look, look, John, what the Bersieri has done. He spoiled my whole vegetable garden. Don Bosco tried to reassure her with a smile and said, Mother, what do you want to do with them? They're young. It was yet another occasion for Mama Margarita to practice her love for the cross. They tried to put the garden back in order, but it never was the same after that, for it disappeared to make more room for the amusements of the young people, yet another example of one of Mama Margarita's sacrifices. But before we get to one of the most extraordinary miracles of St. John Bosco's life that occurred when he was celebrating Mass, I'd like to invite you to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco. Just click on the link in the description of this video, or you can wait till the end and click on the logo for the Mass that will appear on the screen. You don't have to donate to be included in our weekend Mass intentions, but if you do become a monthly donor, you could receive an incredible book written by St. John Bosco like this one. Sacred History, which briefly explains the events of the New Testament for children, although I'm an adult and I found it extremely interesting. You and I know that there are millions of souls out there who need the inspiration from St. John Bosco to get off the broad path to hell and onto the narrow road to heaven. So please help me keep the channel afloat by becoming a monthly donor and clicking the link in the description below to sign up. God reward you in advance for your help. I couldn't be doing any of this without you. And now on to probably one of the most famous miracles of Don Bosco's life. At around the time of the garden accident, a remarkable event strengthened the boy's resolve to remain loyal to the oratory. It was on a solemn feast day, perhaps the nativity of Mary Most Holy, which was being celebrated in the oratory. About 600 boys had confessed their sins and were ready to receive Holy Communion. Don Bosco began to say Holy Mass, believing that the ciborium in the tabernacle was full of consecrated hosts. Instead, it was almost empty. Buzzetti Giuseppe had forgotten to place another ciborium on the altar, with the altar bread to be consecrated, and he didn't remember until halfway through the Eucharistic prayer. Don Bosco began distributing Holy Communion and felt much anguish upon seeing so few consecrated hosts compared to the large crowd surrounding the altar. 
Frustrated by putting off so many without giving them the divine sacrament, he raised his eyes to heaven and continued to distribute Holy Communion without fail. And behold, to his amazement, and that of poor Buzzetti, who knelt and thought only of the displeasure that his forgetfulness would cause Don Bosco, they saw that the hosts did not diminish. Don Bosco was able to give Holy Communion to all the boys. When the service was over, Buzzetti explained what had happened to his companions, some of whom had noticed the event. As evidence, Buzzetti showed them the ciborium he had prepared, which still sat in the sacristy. He told his friends about the miracle many times during his life, ready to affirm it by oath. Don Bosco confirmed this account's truth on October 18, 1863. In private conversation, several clerics questioned him about what Buzzetti had said. After a while, Don Bosco became serious and replied, Yes, there were only a few hosts in the ciborium. Nevertheless, I was able to give Holy Communion to all who approached the sacred table, and there were many. By such a miracle, our Lord Jesus Christ wished to show how much he appreciates devout and frequent Holy Communions. Asked what feelings were in his heart then, he continued, I was moved but calm. I thought, the miracle of consecration is greater than that of multiplication. But for everything, may the Lord be praised. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Let's go. The story of the poor canary trainer and other stories in this episode are from testimonies given by those who knew St. John Bosco that show how hands-on he was in helping poor people, not just through donating to some worthy cause, but personally, one-on-one, -on -one, helping out the poor and needy. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. A beggar's request do not reject. Do not turn your face away from the poor. Be like a father to orphans, and take the place of a husband to widows. Then God will call you his child, and he will be merciful to you and deliver you from the pit. The Book of Sirach. With these words in mind, the invitation and the Holy Spirit's promise added flame to Don Bosco's charity toward his neighbor. How many boys were hospitalized by him, all free of charge? How many orphans came to him for help, and he received them among his children? How many were accepted by him with promises from benefactors or relatives that they would pay a minimal monthly fee that was never paid? Nevertheless, he kept them, providing he saw them perform their duties. And how many of the oratory had shoes, clothing, food, and trade because of his charity? But, as poor as he was, asserts Don Rua, he extended his generosity even to adults who were strangers to his home. The goodness of his heart, said Bishop Caliero, had no limits. Most sensitive to the misfortunes of others, he was full of compassion for the poor and suffering, and amiability and gentleness with them were characteristic virtues throughout his life. His charity was admirable, all the more so given the devastating times in which he lived. He supported many of those who lacked the means to support themselves, at times even receiving them into his house, either temporarily until they found employment, or permanently. Others he urged to retire to charitable institutions. Don Piano remembered, 
When I was a student of morals in Turin, I found myself with Don Bosco one day, and we met a poor man who asked for alms. As happened frequently, Don Bosco had no money with him, so he turned to me and asked if I had any. I answered him by opening my wallet, and he saw that I had a note for two liras, so he begged me to give it to the poor man with a promise to return it to me. A few months later, he told me that he owed me a debt, alluding to that two lira note, and offered it to me. However, I didn't accept as I was happy to cooperate with his charity. Don Dalmazzo wrote, Several times I saw Don Bosco giving out very large alms, especially when it was a matter of people who fell on hard times or women in distress. I also saw him dispense scudi, coins of 20 lire, and more than 300 lira notes. This happened frequently when it came to apostates who had returned to the faith and lacked the means of livelihood, or non-Catholics who had entered the bosom of the church and lacked support. Don Berto adds, In 1874, I accompanied Don Bosco once, and a poor man asked him for alms. Others had already received some. Don Bosco turned to me for some money to give him. I didn't have anything with me at the moment, and pointed out that a great number of the poor were approaching, and we would be unable to satisfy them all. He responded with, Do you not know that it is written, Give, and it shall be given to you? Good measure, and pressed down, and shaken together, and running over shall they give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you shall meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Not a misery fell before his eyes without him trying as much as he could to provide relief for it. One day he was with Don Rua and Don Dalmazzo on one of the main streets of Turin, and there was a bricklayer's boy struggling to push an overloaded cart that was too much for the poor little fellow, and he was crying. Don Bosco left his companions without saying a word, and to their amazement, they saw him pushing the cart for quite a long distance. Don Bosco saw his creator in his creatures and made no distinction of person bringing his charitable work to all, whether they were spiritually or corporately rich or poor. He didn't look at errors, faults, enmities, ingratitude, contrary opinions, or what party the supplicants belonged to. If it could be said that he had any preference for those he helped, it was for the most wretched. Even before he opened his hospice, he displayed an admirable generosity, as Don Revilio now relates. From 1840 to 1860, a new class of people experienced his goodwill. It was that of political immigrants, who came to Piedmont from various states of Italy, and especially from the Venetian and Lombard regions, to escape the rigors of their despotic governments. First among them was an immigrant that was a notary from Pavia who had put his wealthy family status at risk. He now gave performances in St. Charles Square in Turin as his new form of employment. He had trained quite a number of canaries to do unique tricks. He would place them on a table, and one of them would sing at his signal while all the others remained silent. Then he would have a musical challenge between two of the birds, as each tried to win in a singing competition. Sometimes they all sang together in chorus, then a single one continued. The chorus then resumed its warbling until the silence was broken and a duet let its harmonious trills be heard. At last, a grand finale chorus closed the music. Immense crowds witnessed the feats of these little singers 
who fell silent and sang, either solo or in unison, all at a nod from their trainer. There was one scene that called attention to its artistic comedy. Two canaries came out to battle against one another with a cardboard sword attached to one leg and began a duel. The gesture of raising the sword and striking the opponent was done most gracefully. The one who was touched limped as if wounded. The other circled him as the wounded one rolled around, watching the enemy's moves. At last, the assailant raised his foot and lowered his sword in a final blow, and his opponent dropped as if dead, remaining motionless. All the other canaries came out from all sides and would run around it and sang in a sad melody. Then they would grab it with their beaks and drag it over a slight rise placed in the middle of the little table. Then the dead man remained still, and the others would spread a small paper in the form of a funeral drape over it with their beaks. They would put some hay on this paper, which was placed in the corner of the table. Thus, they buried their comrade and retreated to the end of the table, moving their heads while singing with a broken and slow warbling. Then, all of a sudden, the dead man was flapping his wings from underneath the paper and hay, jumps up, and begins a happy warbling. Then all the other canaries gather around him, echoing this festive song. This incredible act sounds impossible, but you just had to see it for yourself. How could someone train a group of birds to be obedient to that degree? Don Bosco had heard about this, and as he was gathering young people to lead them to the oratory at Porta Nuova, he passed through St. Charles Square. He stopped to see that notary's skill in person. Then a strange thing happened. While the canaries normally fled if spectators approached too closely, they weren't frightened as Don Bosco advanced. Astonishingly, they flew to his shoulders, arms, and hand and allowed themselves to be caressed by our saint. Everyone was very impressed by this marvel. Don Bosco wasn't slow in making friends with the juggler, getting him to talk about the various ways he used to tame the birds. The notary spoke of many experiments he had made with various species to train them, and especially the success he had with canaries, which are the most trainable. This was Don Bosco's art, to coax people to reveal their genius. That notary came many times to Valdoco and was invited by Don Bosco to celebrate Easter with them and to send to the oratory one of his young sons who had accompanied him in his exile thus providing charitable care for yet another poor family. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about the Eucharistic miracle St. John Bosco performed, just click on the video I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.